Well, we're walking through the third part of the third chapter of the 1689, and this is, you know, this is a portion of it that, that is of uh, some controversy for, for some people. This is a place many times when we're walking through the 1689 class that we'll even have many questions as to, well, what does this mean, or how do we understand these things? I'd like to review the portions that we've walked through so far in the past two sessions, and then we're going to begin on... Uh, paragraph 3 and attempt to walk through paragraph 4 as well. So let's let's look through paragraph 1 and 2 of chapter 3 of the confession of God's decree. And it says, God hath decreed in himself from all, all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free, of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, As thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. And today we're going to be focusing on the doctrine of reprobation. And it's very important that we approach this doctrine with everything that we have understood so far in this chapter of the confession. And some aspects that we've understood so far is that God hath decreed whatsoever shall come to pass. And in the first session, we we use the the story and the narrative of Genesis of the story of Joseph and him being taken into slavery and God's sovereign purpose that was accomplished in him going into slavery so that many would be saved and most especially that the line of Judah would be preserved because it's through the line of Judah that the Messiah is going to come forward, the one that was promised to come. But we must also understand, which is communicated here in this first paragraph, And that is that although God has decreed whatever comes to pass, he in no way is one who is the author of sin or has fellowship with sin. But God is so sovereign that he uses the free actions of sinful creatures to accomplish his purpose. And we use the stories of Joseph and of Jesus to emphasize that truth. We saw that Joseph's brothers acted freely when they sold him into slavery. They had their own intention, but God had his intention with their actions. And we see Joseph even coming around in the end telling them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We see that also with Christ, that God predestined people to act as they did. He had ordained that they would act as they did, that Pontius Pilate, that Herod acted freely, They acted intentionally. They were not robots. God was not making them act as they did. But he was using their free actions to accomplish his purpose. And he accomplished our redemption through these sinful actions of his creatures. And so we're using these things to help us to understand this other doctrine. Let's look at paragraph 2 in the third chapter of the confession. It says, Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet he hath not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. 
And so God has decreed what he has decreed, and his decree flows out of himself. He's not acting in response to what other people do. Now, this is where many times people will try to get God off the hook. They'll say, look, God chose those who would believe upon him. Well, you believe upon him because you have been chosen. And this is really going to help us with this doctrine of reprobation. Because when we understand the doctrine of election and reprobation, we understand that those that God has called to himself, those that he has chosen, he is acting upon them. The Spirit of God is moving upon that person. The person is being brought to life by the Spirit. Those that are reprobate are being left to themselves. God is choosing to judge people for their free actions, for their intentional actions. And when I say free actions, we all understand that I don't mean the um, Pelagian or Arminian doctrine of free will, where I would believe that all people everywhere have the same freedom to act. Natural man is born sinful. Natural man is born dead in his trespasses and sins. And so natural man is going to be, as Paul talked about, as we saw in Romans 3, Natural man is, is not good. Natural man is, is unrighteous. Paul describes natural man as not seeking after God. Now, here's a portion that we walked through that helped us to see this, this idea of election. And we're going to use the same passage and others to talk about the concept of, of reprobation. And what's interesting here is the many arguments that people will give many times the arguments that people will give against God's sovereignty, against the decree of God, are the very arguments that Paul is answering in the ninth chapter of Romans. Those exact arguments are the ones that people are going to say, hey, wait, what about? Wait, that, that isn't fair. And Paul will answer, well, who are you? Oh, man. Let's look at Romans 9, starting in verse 22. It says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, and make, his power, and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved." And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of these sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And you have the Lord speaking here and declaring the idea that he's calling certain people to himself. He has an intention for certain people to call them to righteousness, to bring them to faith in Christ. And there are others who will stay in their current state and be judged for their sinful actions that they have intentionally done. And so people will ask certain questions. They will say, well, wait a second. Doesn't that make man like a robot? 
God just made him this way. How can God even find fault with someone? If God just made me this way, this is just how I am. Have you heard someone say that about their own sinfulness, about their, their sinful actions? Say, like God just made me this way. This is who I am. Many times it's used as an argument. No, God did not make you as you are. God made man, as we saw previously in, 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 the, in the, actually we'll see next in the confession, God made man perfect, and God made man righteous, but man fell. So you're not as God made you. You are acting according to your own desires. So when we understand God using man's actions, we see even God hardening someone's heart, hardening the heart of Pharaoh. You are not to understand that to be that God is making Pharaoh do that which is sinful. You must understand that there's a great many things that the Lord uses in the world to curb sin. There's many things that are there that lead people not to be as evil as they possibly could be. Even your own reasonableness, even basic inhibitions that you may have naturally. For Pharaoh to go as far as he did, to go headlong chasing after the Israelites into the Red Sea as the water is parted was insanity. It made no sense at all. The Lord had hardened the heart of Pharaoh that he would do that which was in his heart, which was to rebel against God. That's what he did. That's what's happening when the Lord is hardening someone's heart. The Lord is not making someone act in a way that is evil. The Lord is not putting something there that's not already there. It's the Lord not restraining the sinfulness of man. The Lord restrains men all the time. And you can think of even some of the most evil men that have ever existed. And they are not as evil as they possibly could be. We covered that one. What? Didn't God just make me this way? No, God didn't make you that way. Others will ask the question. They will say, doesn't predestination make evangelism unnecessary? I mean, if God's already decided who's going to be saved, why even bother to preach the gospel? How many times have you heard this? How many times have you heard the caricature of Reformed theology and Calvinists that Calvinists just don't care about evangelism. Calvinists just don't care about missions. They just figure the Lord will save whoever he is going to save. Well, that's a very ignorant statement. That's a very ignorant statement based on church history. I was invited to be on a podcast recently, and I walked through the life and theology of John Calvin. And one thing that was incredible, I knew John Calvin raised up missionaries and sent them into France No, no, John Calvin raised up thousands of missionaries to go into France and to die and to be persecuted. But they planted many churches. And there was much light that was in France during that time because of churches that were raised up and sent from men out of Geneva. This idea that someone who is a Calvinist, someone believes in the, the sovereign decree of God, someone believes that God sovereignly must act in order for someone to be saved, that you don't believe in evangelism or, or you don't think it matters what you do is absolutely absurd. The truth is that you know it is up to the Lord. It's ultimately up to the Lord. But you know that the Lord has ordained the ends as well as the means. 
He has ordained the ends of what he will do and the means through which it will happen. So he's decreed, we would even say that, the first cause. God is the first cause of all things, but he's decreed in second causes particular things that would happen, things that would happen in people's lives. People that, you will, people that will interact with you. Think of the ways in which you were influenced in your life. I mean, certainly there was a time when you came to faith in Christ, but there's, there's so much work that had been done prior to that. There's so many ways in which other people had influenced you. And so the Calvinist knows that God ordains the ends as well as the means. And the Lord has ordained that it is the preaching of the gospel that will bring people to faith in Christ Jesus This is a relief. You only have to focus on what you're commanded to focus on. You only need to focus on the law and the gospel. That's what you must present to someone. That's what you must declare to other people. That's the means through which they will come to an understanding of their sinfulness. That's the means through which they will come to an understanding of their need of Christ. It's so important. It's one of the things that begins to happen If you begin to think, well, the Lord, it's all up to me. It's all up to what I do. God's not really sovereign in this. As you start trying to be creative, you start trying to come up with your own plan. And you begin to find that people are offended by the law. People don't like to hear the law of God. People don't like to hear of their own sinfulness. So you begin to make less of it. You begin to make it a smaller thing. And you don't emphasize the law of God, the sinfulness of man. You don't emphasize the ways in which you are needing the blood of Christ. And you make it rather a way in which it's just going to help your life. It's just going to make your life better. Your life will be easier. And you end up proclaiming that which is not the gospel. Or if you do, you're very soft. You're not very clear. Sometimes people even begin to communicated in a way that doesn't really declare the seriousness of sin. It doesn't need to, doesn't really communicate the, the, the seriousness of man's situation. And then it communicates Christ's work is merely just making your life better. I mean, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? I've had a few people that jokingly say, no. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You, you may have this other idea of heaven, there's going to be a party in the sky with you and your, your biker gang or you and your friends. But you, you, you don't, you don't, the idea of, of eternal torment is not something that is appealing to anyone. But you begin to lessen the law of God. You begin to lessen the work of Christ and what he did. And you begin to make it very man-centered. That's not evangelism. That's not beneficial for anyone. The preaching of the gospel is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely crucial. But if you will declare the gospel to others, if you'll rightly declare the law and the gospel, it's, it's up to the Lord. It is between that person and the Lord. I know there's times in my life when I didn't, didn't hold to this doctrine, and I, would, and I would share the gospel with others. I would be on the street sharing the gospel with other people, and I would be just kicking myself the rest of the week, like, oh, If only I'd said this. If only I gave this response. If only I said, you begin to talk to people after a while, and you begin to realize it's not really about my apologetic responses. This person is at enmity with God. As soon as you answer this question, that person comes up with another one. You answer this question, the person comes up with another one. This person has a disposition that is contrary to righteousness, and this person is trying to justify themselves in their sinfulness. 
But I began to realize that it wasn't up to me. It was up to the Lord. I began to trust in the Lord. Not that it doesn't matter what I do. Not that I don't have to share the gospel with anyone. I don't have to do anything. It doesn't matter what I do. Of course it matters. These are people's eternal souls. These are people's lives. These are people's families that are affected. There's generations that are influenced by people that come to Christ Jesus. How many of you are people that had parents that were unchristians, not Christians, and you have been saved, and all your family around you, they're not Christians, and your life is so different, and you think about the ways in which there are generational changes that are happening now, not that your children are Christians because you are a Christian, but there is a blessedness, there's a goodness of those that would be raised in a Christian home and brought brought to church on the Lord's Day. That which you didn't experience in your life, it very much is important. That was just an introduction. But let's go on to paragraph three of this, of this chapter. And I'm going to try to finish this chapter up, by the way, um, next time. So we'll, we'll only have four sessions. Someone came to me and said, you, you spent like 15 sessions on the second chapter. I was like, it's the doctrine of God. It's theology proper. We're not going to do that in every single chapter. And even others, I don't think we'll spend even even four sessions on. But let's look at paragraph three. It says, by the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. Now you see how the framers worded that. They were very specific in how they worded that. The others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation. That is reprobation. That is the Lord leaving people to themselves, leaving them to act on their own. That is the doctrine of reprobation. It is not that God is going out and causing the person to act really evil. Or another foolish concept that people have is this idea that There are all these people that are there that are just seeking after God. Sometimes churches, they say, we want to be seeker-sensitive, and that means we need to be really entertaining. We need lots of lights, and we need smoke. They have this idea that there's people that are just seeking, and they're just seeking after God. There are people that are seeking after God. There's people that that the Lord is, is working upon. But there are not people that are seeking after God, and the Lord's just saying, no. No, you can't come to Jesus. That is an incorrect understanding of this doctrine. People who are left to themselves will continue in their own religion. They will continue in their legalistic religion of man. They're not seeking after the Lord. They're not seeing their sin. They're not seeing the seriousness of their sin. And we also have this even even just logically. We're going to see passages where this is declared that the Lord is is actively um, not, not taking people. All right, this, is, this is intentionally on his part. And we need to understand this in, in a right biblical way, that it's not as though the Lord just said, okay, I'm going to save these people, but then there's these ones over here, and, and they might come to faith or they might not, but the Lord's not acting on them. That's not a right understanding of this. It's also not a right understanding to say that the Lord is causing people to be this way. The Lord's not causing someone to be this way. That's the way the person is. The person is naturally dead in their sin and trespasses. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, talks about um, the predestination. 
and it talks about um, the doctrine of, of, of redemption, the covenant of redemption. And we see that beginning in verse 3 of Ephesians 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we see this doctrine of election. The Lord is calling people to himself. That is where it began. In eternity past, and his decree flowed out from himself. As we saw in the previous paragraph, it wasn't because of you. It wasn't because you were going to be so obedient, or you were going to be so good, or you were going to love him so much. No, Christ showed us love, and that while we were, God showed us love, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. It is God showing his love to us when we are his enemies. We've seen that in the last few passages of Luke, and we've tried to, to consider that in light of how we act towards those, that are, those who are our enemies in understanding what the Lord has done to us who were his enemies. Continuing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And we have the Lord here determining that he will save certain people, that he will bring people to faith in Christ Jesus, that he will adopt certain people. And so it, it follows logically that if he has chosen certain people to come to faith in him, and those people that he has chosen are going to come to him, then there are those that are not chosen, and those who are not chosen will not come to him. These are those that in other parts of scripture, it says they were designated for condemnation, Jude verse 4. It says certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And this is the doctrine of reprobation. The Lord is leaving these people to themselves. He is intentionally doing this. This is, this is God freely acting and not acting. But it's not the Lord making them evil or, 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 or causing them to sin. There was an excellent example that I heard from a man who's, who's no longer a pastor. He, he's retired from ministry. His name is Arden Hodgins. And he has a great illustration that, that I like on this. And he, he, says, he, he says, imagine this. Imagine that I was someone who was um, a real estate developer. And I desired to go out and, and purchase some property. And I desired to, you know, renovate some of these properties. And, and I had a, a book, and it had many properties that were condemned in the city. And so I can go through, and I can pick which ones, which ones. I don't want to buy all of these properties. Which ones do I want? I'm going through, and I'm flipping through the book, and I'm, I'm setting aside certain properties. Okay, I want this one. I want this one. I want this one. And then I'll leave the book here. I don't want these properties. I'm not going to invest in these properties. I'm not going to buy these properties. And he says, imagine someone then comes up to me and says, how dare you? How dare you condemn those properties? How dare you destroy these properties? And he would say, what, what are you talking about? 
I, these properties were already condemned. That's the state that they were in. It, it, it was a book of condemned properties, and I merely grabbed houses out of this book that I was going to purchase, and I was going to renovate, and I was going to put them in a state where they are no longer condemned. I think that's a good picture of what the Lord is doing. It's not a perfect illustration. You can find areas that it's not perfect, but the, the Lord is not causing people to be condemned. That's, that's what the people are. They are already condemned. It says in the book of John that those who do not believe on the Son, the wrath of God, is, is over them. You need to understand that as well. You need to understand that election is not the same as justification. That's another reason someone would say, well, why preach the gospel? Because you're not going to be saved apart from turning to Christ Jesus and trusting in Christ Jesus. It's not relevant that you were elect in reference to God's wrath being over you, you could be elect, but prior to you trusting in Christ, the wrath of God was over you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Were you to die in that state, you would spend eternity in hell. That is your reality. You are actually being saved at that time. And you are justified at the point of trusting in Christ. That is the point that that happens. That's the point at which you have peace with God. Very important that you understand that. Very important. That you, when we talk about salvation, we're not just talking about the point in which you, you trusted in Christ Jesus. That's a very important part. It's a significant part. It's a great change in your life. There, there's so many other aspects as well. We do have election. We do have the justification that is there. We have the regeneration. We have sanctification. Ultimately, we're going to have glorification. Let's look on it. Paragraph 4. We've got a few minutes left. It says, these angels and men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. They're talking about particular redemption here. This is the idea that certain people were saved. When Christ died upon the cross, that there were a particular people that he had in mind. There are, even say this, There are particular sins that are being forgiven. Because here's the consequence. If you just have this general atonement, Jesus isn't really dying for anyone. Jesus isn't really forgiving anyone's sins. It's just more or less this pool. He doesn't have anyone in mind at this time. It's just whoever it, it is going to be. This is where some people begin to walk into very heretical ideas on the doctrine of God. People begin to walk into this concept, this heretical doctrine of open theism. They come up with this idea. They say, well, if God knows who's going to be saved, if God knows who's going to come to faith in Christ Jesus, they say, well, then no one really has a choice. There's someone that was an Arminian that said, wait a minute. So they do this. They say, absolutely Man had a free choice. Therefore, God is restraining his omniscience in this area. That's the idea of open, uh, open theism. That God is restraining his deity in some way. Like God can't do that. God can't restrain his deity. God can't not be God. You can't be God and not be God at the same time. God can't not be what he is. God, if God could restrain his deity, he could change. He's also immutable. He doesn't change. It's, it's absolutely not possible. And we're understanding this concept of particular redemption. 
It, it is so superior theologically to this idea of a, a general atonement or this idea of, of an in particular redemption because Jesus had you in mind, not that you were, you know, not, not, not like that terrible song that is sung like a rose trampled on the ground. He took the fall and thought of me above all. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Okay, but, but he did have you in mind and particular sins that, that you would commit, particularly in your life, that were forgiven upon the cross. Okay, there's something very particular that, that is there. It's not just this loose theoretical group. We'll see who ends up here, or we've got so much redemption here. And the normal term that's used for this is called limited atonement, and that's the one that many people like to push back on. We keep using limited atonement because it spells the word TULIP, and it's very hard for us to change our acronyms. When we've been using the same acronym for a good 400-plus years, it's really hard for us to change it. And so I like particular redemption better, but it doesn't spell TULIP anymore if I, if I, if I put a P, P in the wrong place. And so um, it's limited atonement. But understand this as well. People like to push back. You just say the Lord's atonement is limited. We're not saying what it could possibly accomplish. Christ's blood is so great. He, he could forgive all sin everywhere, everyone, if everyone believed upon him. That's not a question of what God has the ability to do. And the truth is the Calvinist and the Arminian both believe in a limited atonement unless you're a universalist. Unless you're saying that the blood of Jesus forgives everyone everywhere. If you're like a Rob Bell and you say, well, love wins, universalism, everyone's sins are going to be forgiven. It doesn't matter who you are. Now, of course, people like to take caveats and say, okay, well, Pol Pot and and Hitler and uh, Mao Zedong. And so there's people in here that, that, okay, well, they won't. But everyone else, as Joel Osteen would say, 99.9% of all people are good the universalists that kind of take that perspective there as well. There, there's, the blood of Christ is just going to forgive everyone. So unless you're taking a universalistic perspective, then unless you're saying that everyone's sins everywhere are going to be forgiven through the work of Christ on the cross, then you are declaring there's a limit to the atonement. The question there becomes, who's limiting it? Who's limiting the atonement? Is God limiting the atonement in his decree and who is he, he's electing, and who he's going to call to himself, and, and, and who Christ is, what sins Christ is actually going to forgive? Or is it man? Because the man's limiting the atonement in the Arminian perspective. It's just about man and what he does. So if you trust in Christ, you, you're extending the atonement. If you don't believe in Christ, you're, you're limiting the atonement. They both believe in the concept of, of limited atonement. But the other aspect I want you to understand of particular redemption is the Lord knows his people. He knows who are his. This is a theme you see throughout the scripture. 2 Timothy 2 in verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord knows who are his. The Lord knows who he is calling to himself. Jesus even says, my sheep hear my voice. He's talking about a particular people. This is a definite atonement. 
There's a particular people that are being saved. Jesus even makes this distinction. Um, John 13 and 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a... I skipped ahead. John 13, 18. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So, so Jesus even chose all of the apostles, but even of the apostles, he chose a particular people. We can say this. Jesus chose, uh, the Lord chose Israel, called them out of Egypt to be his people, but he even chose a particular people from amongst them. The writer of Hebrews talks about this. There's a great many of them that died in the wilderness, died in their unbelief, did not believe the message of the Messiah, did not believe the message that was given. Died idolaters. You see their behavior. Even shortly after Moses goes up the mount, they are making for themselves idols. That, that is where their hearts were. 2 Timothy, let's look at this passage. It says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are... Hyenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands. The Lord knows those who are his. This is, the, this is where this passage is occurring. This is the doctrine here as it is contained, that there are a people here that are speaking contrary to the truth, but the Lord knows those who are his. This is the, the concept of particular redemption, the Lord calling a people to himself. And that is, that is the concept that we have here just to um, review this, this concept of reprobation. It is, it is the Lord leaving a people to himself. He has called a people to himself. He has elected a people, and there are others that he is leaving to their own devices. He is leaving them in their sinful state. He is leaving them to act on their own. And we understand this in the decree of God. God's even going to use the actions of these sinful people to accomplish his own purpose. But God is intentionally doing this. But in reprobation, we understand, and it must be understood, that the Lord is leaving people in this state to act as they are. He's not forcing them to be what they are not. But in he's even doing this, you could say. You could understand it this way. The Lord in reprobation is giving people what they deserve. He's giving people what they should rightly receive for their sinful heart and actions. But in election, the Lord is calling a people to himself. The Lord is giving people grace. And that's, I think, a, a good way of differentiating the two and keeping it biblical and not going beyond what the Bible says so that we begin to affect our understanding of who God is. So let's go ahead and pray.